beautiful people and welcome back to another episode of Wildcard Conversations, my little podcast where I pull random cards with thought-provoking questions for my wonderful guests. I am your host Katja Bavendam and I am so grateful for the diverse group of friends, acquaintances and strangers who come on here with open hearts and minds. What they all have in common is that they have wisdom to share, knowledge to drop, stories to tell and I am so happy to hold space for them, listen to them, sing their praises, cry and laugh with them, and share a little bit of myself as we go along. On today's episode, I am joined by WNBA legend, singer, model, inspirational speaker, and now marketing specialist for Nike, the one, the only, Kim Hampton, who I am so lucky to have in my life as a friend. Kim took me on a wonderful journey from Louisville to Arizona to Spain, Italy, France, Japan, New York City, and now Portland, Oregon. She attributes this full and interesting life to always staying open to new opportunities and then stepping into them as they arise. She's grounded in the belief that fate has a way of working itself out and that we are always presented with exactly the opportunities and challenges that will lead us to the lessons we need to learn most in life. Having this uninterrupted time to listen to Kim tell me parts of her life story was such a gift to me and I'm so glad to be sharing it with you. You definitely want to stay tuned until the end when Kim goes into full-on inspirational speaker mode with a closing message to the listeners that is jam-packed with wisdom. On that note, I want to thank you so much for listening today. And as always, I hope you find joy and value in this conversation. If you want to support the show and get it in front of more listeners, you know the deal. Please leave some ratings, reviews, hit the subscribe and follow buttons and tell all your friends about it. And now all you have to do is sit back, relax and enjoy this conversation with the beautiful Kim Hampton. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. And I want to give the listeners some background on how we're connected and how I got such a legend on my little podcast. So I'm going to take it back about almost 20 years. You played for the Liberty, which for the people who don't know, that is the women's professional basketball team in New York City, the WNBA team. And I think you had just retired I started college in Brooklyn in 2004. You were hanging around in Brooklyn. And so I got lucky to get you on the coaching staff. You were helping out with developing the big girls. And as much as you helped me on the court, I remember you being much more of a presence to me and helpful off the court. I'm a sensitive soul and sometimes I need a little loving. And so you always gave me that safe place to land, non-judgmental, tough love, but always love. So appreciate it. And I'm grateful we're still in touch. And here we are doing this podcast. Yay. And I'm so proud of you just to see how far you've come. I know you are extremely sensitive. And I think it just comes from it just stems from the place of being such a great person. This is what I do know about you. I know that you are such a warm, loving, giving person. And I've lived long enough to know that not everyone knows how to reciprocate that or give it back. And, you know, I think that you had some lessons to learn in life. And, um, you know, I think there were tough lessons as well. But, you know, that's what life is about. Life is about learning. And, I, and so I'm so proud of you because I feel that you have definitely 
gone through the fire a lot, even as we've gotten out of touch. You know, I mean, I know that you've experienced quite a few things, but I hope that you've taken away from some of those lessons. The true fact that number one, the only person that we can truly control is ourselves. Everything that happens or another, that another person does depends on how, first and foremost, we perceive that, you know, that will determine how it affects us and how we allow it to affect us. And so I feel that you have definitely grown in those areas. So I'm glad and grateful that I could have been a part of your life and during those times. And I'm always here. You, my baby. Oh, thank you. And I think that's what I meant too, by just that safe place, because often that sensitivity, I think, in sports and college sports at the highest level, it was perceived as a weakness. And coaches want to kind of beat it out of you, you know, be tough, don't cry. And that's all good and well. And I I had to get tougher. But I felt like with you, you just kind of saw me and loved me and accepted me for who I was while still pushing me. So thank you again. You definitely were a big part of of learning those lessons. Now that we got our love fest out of the way, (laughs) are you ready for my wild card, my random question of the day? All right, shoot. Okay, so I have 17 cards here. So if you want to give me a number between one and 17, we'll take the card that you're choosing. Seven. Ooh, what is a dream you have let go of? A dream that I have let go of. Oh, wow. That's a tough question because, I mean, I still dabble in all of the dreams that I've had. I haven't let any dreams go. Yeah, I I, I still always have hope. (laughs) Even though some of them haven't come to fruition, I just have hope that they will eventually. And that's kind of how my life has played out. I remember growing up as a little girl, I always wanted to be a singer, like, but I was super shy and, but I loved singing, loved it. And because basketball was such a force in my life, I allowed that. And because I was super shy too, and and afraid had stage fright, I allowed the basketball to take over. So I put the singing on the back burner, but when the WNBA happened, it afforded me opportunities to do like a lot of things. Like I wanted to, I secretly wanted to be a model and I secretly wanted to be the singer. and, And all of those opportunities came to fruition. And although I'm not doing like singing, for example, as a profession and, you know, there's plus size modeling and things like that. Now, although I'm not doing those things, still opportunities pop up and they happen. And so, so I don't, you know, and like, I eventually, I want to be married one day, you know, I I haven't given up on that, you know, yeah, I haven't, I haven't given up on any of my dreams. Yeah. You know, I feel like there's hope. So tell me more about these dreams. So you're mentioning the singing, the modeling, which both of which you've done and you're so talented and such a gift to the world. And then the forever relationship, forever love type of thing. So tell me a little bit more about that, whatever, whatever pops up for you. For me, I mean, just looking for opportunities. Like I just moved to Portland, Oregon about six months ago, and I would like to get on the music scene here. So what have I been doing? I hadn't been doing anything prior but um, I entered <laughs> my job. They have, they we're having this brand marketing's got talent contest. It's not a contest. It's just an opportunity for us to show some talents and skills. And so I signed up for that. So I'm going to get a chance to sing a song and we're in production now and things like that. So for me, it's looking to seize opportunities, build relationships that allow me to to meet musicians and I don't know, potentially maybe even record here and things. So I'm looking to eventually start doing something because, you know, although it might not be my 
first career choice and that's what I'm doing. I'm touring and traveling and, and things like that. I still want to do it. And who knows what might kick off? What if something happens or I, I record something and all of a sudden, you know, I'm nominated for a Grammy and all of a sudden my life just kind of takes that path. And that's kind of how my life has truly happened. Even when I just remember graduating from high school, I didn't want to stay in the state of Kentucky. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and um, I wanted to go somewhere different. So I chose to go to Arizona State. But when I graduated, there was no professional basketball in America for women. I knew that I wasn't prepared. I was a theater major and I knew I wasn't prepared to go into the world of theater because basketball took the front seat in my life. And I knew I had more opportunities there and I was more comfortable there, shall I say as well. So, you know, Europe opened up for me. So I took those opportunities. And then because I took those opportunities, when the WNBA started, I was still playing. Uh, I was 35 year old, turned 36 at the time, you know, and I was blessed enough to be drafted in the elite draft with the 96, those Olympians like Lisa Leslie, Rebecca Lobo, and Cheryl Swoops and those guys. And so, so when that opened up, I got drafted to New York. And so I moved to New York. And then when this opportunity to work with Nike came, I relocated to Portland. So I've just prided myself on being able to step into opportunities. So that's just what I'm looking to do when it comes to the music and when it comes to the modeling, when it comes to to anything, to life, to love. I mean, let's do it. It's right. You're a good brand ambassador. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> I know your music mostly from live performances. Have you recorded before? Have you done an album, anything like that? I haven't done an album, but I have recorded several songs a while back, maybe about five or six years ago. I started dabbling in it again. I was working on a song, but I haven't actually released anything. Not yet. So is that something that you want to do? Because it sounds very much like the live music is where it's at for you. You want to get into the Portland music scene and connect with other musicians and do that. But is the recording something that's part of that continuous dream? Yeah, it definitely is. You know, it's something that I would definitely like to dabble into. It's something that I could definitely want to do. But when it comes to recording, things have to be in place better. What am I recording? What are, who are my musicians? What about producers? What, what's the studio like? You know, I mean, and then you have cost and funding and, and what's the project behind recording? What's the reason, the purpose behind recording? When you're recording, it's so much more, what do I want to do with the product once it's finished? You know, what are your plans with that? With live music, you know, it's just one night. <laughs> you perform and, and you're done. So you're getting a chance to do that, but it's just more calculative when you're talking about recording. What is your favorite song to sing? If you walked up to an open mic right now and there's a bunch of talented musicians and you could sing any song you wanted to sing? First of all, let me tell you how I got over my stage fright. I remember just being afraid to sing in front of people. I mean, everyone, everywhere I went, every team that I played on, all of my teammates, like those that were close to me knew that I could sing and I would sing in front of them and things like that. But if you put me up on a stage, I would just be like, oh my God, fear would just <laughs> engulf me like. And so when karaoke happened, I remember starting to go to karaoke and I was fascinated by it, an opportunity to sing. Oh my goodness. And, but I would always wait. <laughs> I'd be the last person or the last two or three people. And a lot of people would have gone by then. And then I just started doing that. And then more and more, I started going to various karaoke's, you know, in a town, in a city of oh, Tuesday night is here, you know, Friday night is there. They have a Saturday here. And so I got a group of friends. It was like three of us and we all got together and we were, we were on the karaoke scene. And so the first song that I I started singing out in public was Misty. And now let me tell you a little bit about that. See, 
jazz to me is so individual. I mean, it's like a, a person can sing Misty and it could be up-tempo. It could be in a ballad form. It could, you know, you could do so many things to it. You know, like you could start out slow and, and then, you know, in the hook, you, I mean, in the change, you can, you know, speed it up and then slow it back down when you go back to the verse and the chorus is what I mean. You could speed up the chorus. So it's just so many ways to express yourself in jazz and it's accepted. When you sing an R&B song, like if you get up and sing a Whitney Houston song, people are going to expect you to be able to hold some water in that. So say, for example, if I if I started out singing a Whitney Houston song like, And I will always love you. Everybody's going to start talking and they're going to be drinking, you know, and everything. But, you know, if you start out with you, my darling, you, then people might be like, oh, wow, you're more judged by singing like R&B songs or just really key songs, like really big hits and songs. But jazz is a lot more forgiving because jazz is interpretational. However you interpret it. I don't know if I selected it because of that, but with some hindsight now, and I don't recall saying, okay, I'm going to sing jazz because no one really judge you with jazz, but I really love the song Misty. So my go-to songs that's a long way of explaining it, but I wanted to give you some insight on how I started singing when, but the two go-to karaoke songs right now is The Way by Jill Scott and then Misty is always one. I'm more of a this uh, saxophone player. I've sang with him many times. You know, he was saying, he told me I'm a torch singer. That's people that have a tendency to lean towards slower music, more love music. So I'm a torch singer. Some people do a lot of up-tempo stuff and a lot of scatting and things like that. And yeah, I understand, you know, if you're performing performing and, you know, I'm having a night out, I'm going to have to mix it up and have both because you don't want to just put everybody to sleep, you know, unless it's like Valentine's or something. But yeah, I lean towards that. So those two songs, the way it's, it's not a ballad, but it's like a mid-tempo, you know, it's like a sexy, feisty type of song. And then, yeah, and Misty. But I love, I love jazz. I love, it's something about it. I can remember being a little girl listening, listening to different jazz musicians or Ella Fitzgerald singing certain songs. I love Dionne Warwick growing up, Karen Carpenter, her smooth voice. And there was just certain songs that just grabbed me as a kid that I really liked. So you're obviously so well-rounded and it was interesting to hear you talk earlier about choosing basketball because it just made sense. I didn't know you were a theater major. And then you just kind of name dropped a few people, a couple of basketball legends. I find that so fascinating that you were in that group when professional women's basketball really started being a thing. I started college in 2004, so I had been, what, around for eight years to WNBA. I know I had a little Lisa Leslie book at home. She was one of my idols. So I can't imagine not having those idols around for me. And you didn't, right, when you were a basketball player? Not at all. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just turned 60. And when I was growing up, I didn't start playing uh, organized sports until my freshman year of high school, which was 1976. So Title IX was still fresh and, and everyone was still trying to figure that out. So women's basketball, when I got ready, when I was graduated in 1980, women's basketball was still in the AIAW house and it hadn't gone to move to NCAA yet. And so Back then, you didn't see women's sports on television like you do now. You may have seen the 
championship game, but I didn't know what schools to go to. I didn't know that Old Dominion was a thing. I was getting letters from Old Dominion <laughs> like water. I didn't know that going to Tennessee and and I didn't know about Pat Head Summit. I literally got a letter probably almost every day from Pat from the school, you know. And so me not knowing where to go, I'm getting letters from UCLA, USC, you know, like every literally everywhere in the nation. And I just didn't know what school to go to. And not only that, and I was a three-time state champion in the shot put, so I could have gone to college on a track scholarship um, as well. And all I was getting letters from all the top schools from that. And so I just didn't know where to go. I just literally chose Arizona State. I just didn't want to stay in the state of Kentucky. I could have gone to Kentucky, of course, could have gone to University of Louisville, but I wanted to get out and see something different, something new. It's so funny because, you know, how fate just kind of works out. So when I chose Arizona State, I don't I chose Arizona State because the weather was warm. Correction, hot. And because the school, the university back then, it was we they had 47,000 students. I mean, it was a huge campus. It was beautiful. The facilities were beautiful. And then not to mention, because it wasn't NCAA, they weren't flying kids out on school trips. So if you wanted to go visit a school, it was on your own dime. My parents weren't flying me out to Arizona and to California and to all of these schools to check it out, you know. So I chose Arizona State based off of brochures, talking to coaches, talking to players on the phone, you know, and things. Our phone in the house literally started raining at 7 a.m. It didn't stop till like 11 p.m. My father really wanted me to play at the University of Louisville because, you know, we're from Louisville, Kentucky. You know, he wanted me to play there, but I just wanted more. I wanted, you know, I was like, I grew up here. I want to see something different. I just knew that more was calling. So, you know, so for me, yeah, it was, it was just really, really different. And to think again, that I was able to go on, make those decisions. And I was saying that it was just really crazy how fate works out. I didn't go to Tennessee because I thought it was too close. Oh, that's Tennessee, not knowing the history of Tennessee, you know, and things like that. And usually if you go to those Tennessees and Yukons, you're more likely to be on the Olympic team. You're more likely to do all of these things. And so I didn't understand that. But at Arizona State, my head coach, Julene Brzezinski-Simpson, happened to have been the co-captain of the 76 Olympic team with Pat Head Summit. And so... You know, I learned so, so much. She was tough, just like Pat has some of those couple of times I wanted to transfer. You know, I just want to quit. She pushed you mentally, emotionally, physically. And one of the greatest lessons, I'm so glad I didn't transfer because one of those lessons are there's so often we want to tap out because we've reached our own glass limit, our glass ceiling and, and of limitations. And we don't know what's beyond, but the one thing that she's taught me that whenever you're ready to tap out, there's always more. There's always more. For example, I remember we would have like these mental toughness days, like days where I just felt like she pushed us just to break through that ceiling. So she would say something like, okay, we only have three timed suicides, but everyone had to make them in your time, in the time that you were allotted. We had three different groups. I had to always run with the guards. If somebody didn't make it, we had to run it over again. So everyone makes the first one. Then the second one, one person didn't make it. Then the third one, of course, it was somebody else that didn't make it. The fourth one, somebody else didn't make it. Well, ultimately, we finally got it and we ended up having to run seven. And so at the end, you know, she had the conversation. If you can make your time this time in seven on the seventh one and you made it, then why couldn't you have made it on three? I gave you the three. So now we all made it. So it just lets us know, you know, all quite often, you know, we, we just feel like we can't. But if she would have said, all right, I know this is the seventh one. I'm going to give every person a million dollars. If you make it, I guarantee you people are going to find a way to dig deep. You know what I'm saying? 
So um, that was one of the greatest lessons that I learned. Quite often we want to tap out when it's challenging for us, you know, when when it's at adverse for us. But if you could stick it out and really be honest with yourself, am I giving my best? Am I being a little soft mentally? Am I looking to point the finger? Can I get better at this? Can I, am I really giving my all? Am I really in great shape? Or do I need to work harder? Yeah, so it really worked out and it helped that although I didn't get a chance, you know, maybe God felt like, yeah, if I would have put you on one of those teams, yeah, you would have just took the easy way out. You need some lessons. And, you know, I'm grateful for my opportunities and the things that I've experienced. And you then graduated. Title IX had just happened. For those who don't know, Title IX just meant basically affording girls the same opportunities as boys, correct? Yeah, well, what Title IX is, is any school that receives government funding, if you receive a state grant, if you're Arizona State, you know, or any school that's receiving federal funding, they have to allow the same opportunities for women or girls and women as they do the boys. You can't have, you know, like Arizona State can't have 20 men's sports and only five women's sports program. So it has to be equal. Okay. So women's sports is just starting to gain some momentum. But again, the WNBA doesn't exist. So you have, I'm sure, a fantastic career at Arizona State. And then Yes, girl. Look, I'm still the all-time leading scorer and rebounder, male or female, in the history of Arizona State. 2,361 points, 1,400 rebounds. There's still records that I still hold. At one point, I, I held 40 school records. It's not 40 now, but I know it's still a lot. So I did. I ended up having a great career. And when I look back with hindsight, I could have given more. You know, I could have done more. You know, it's so funny in life. Our bodies, our minds are incredibly adaptable and we learn something very fast. It's kind of like when you're driving home from work, you are not thinking and focusing on the road because you know it. It's like almost automatic pilot. Have you ever gotten home and not and thought like, damn, how did I even get here? I don't even remember. It's like they say we only use probably like 5% of our brain. And that's only when we have to do something different, something out of the norm. So if we have to go a different way and there's a detour, now we're paying attention. You know, now we're using, you know, our minds to to have to figure things out. But as long as we're on automatic pilot and, and that goes with workouts, that goes with practice, you know, how to get through practice. You just know how to give enough to where you stay out of trouble with the coaches. You know, you know how to hustle enough and, you know, and things like that. You know who you're guarding. We fly on automatic pilots so much. And so I was like, man, all of this hindsight, if I could go back, I would go back to my freshman year of high school because I would have just given so much more and done so much more. And so now when we talk to all these kids and we talk about work hard, take your education seriously, because when you make good grades, you get to pick and choose where you want to go and what you want to do, as opposed to having to now get all these student loans and yada, yada, you know, and now having a daughter, which, you know, my daughter very well. My daughter was just a little toddler, probably barely walking. No, she wasn't even walking when she was out there with you guys. And then she was walking, you know, and running around with you. So now she's uh, in her freshman year at the University of Cincinnati. So me trying to pour these lessons into her so that she can bypass some of the pitfalls or some of the some of the tough roads of life is, you know, it's just and then you just want to strangle them because it's like they're not listening and they know. And, and then you hit a bump. And I'm like, girl, I'm trying to tell you the straight path. If you want to get somewhere, I can help you. I, I've gone to college. I, it's been tough. You know, the coaches are on you. It's it's tough. I think that's the tricky part about sports and life in general 
but just when your body is at its highest and at its best, when you're young, you haven't had the lessons in mental toughness yet and in in doing your best. Like I think we can all look back on situations where we're like, oh, I could have done more with what I know now with how life works and all of that. I definitely felt like that when I had my big career ending injury that made me so tough just having to deal with that and coming out of that and processing that, that I'm like, man, now that gave me the mental toughness that I was always lacking when my body was still functioning. So that's when I wish I could have gone back and apply that being in the moment and letting life happens as, as it happens and all of that. But that's just how it is. Yeah, it is. It's it is definitely how it is. And and then you wonder, uh, wow, why couldn't I have done that? Why couldn't I have done that? And, and and you know, maybe it's because you would have never learned the lessons that you needed to learn. You know, they say we all came here to learn specific lessons. And uh so I guess we're gonna go down the path and meet the people and the places and the, the events and opportunities that will help us to learn those lessons. That's right. And sometimes we're just not ready for our teachers. For sure. So then you graduate and then what happened with all this basketball talent and you being the star, where do we take that stardom next? Uh, We took it to Spain, actually. Actually, I was one of the finalists for the Margaret Wade Trophy. The Margaret Wade Trophy is the equivalent of the Heisman Trophy. So it's the trophy for the top female basketball player in the nation. And so I was one of the 50 finalists for that. So they flew everybody to New York and that's where the ceremony was. It was a big dinner ceremony and then they named the winner. But I was in the room and I was approached by this agent. His name was Bruce Levy. He was probably the first person that represented women going abroad and he had the monopoly of players. And I knew I wanted to go because I represented the United States in Taipei, Taiwan the year prior. And I got a chance to meet a couple of American people that were playing on the Italian team because she was explaining to me, yeah, I've been playing in Italy for to me. And I was listening to her talk to her teammates in Italian. And I was like, oh, my God, I was like so fascinated by that. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. I was getting ready to go abroad. And so it happened for me. I played my first six years in Spain. And then then I went to Italy and then I went to Japan. Then I went to France and then back to Italy. So it was yeah, it was great. You did that for 15 years. Yeah, I did that. Yeah, for like 15 years. Well, actually, it was 12 and a half years abroad, actually. But 15 years of a professional career, including the WNBA. What was your your favorite place to play in? Is there one that stands out the most where you have the fondest memory of that European career? It was probably... Spain and Italy, because I played there the longest. I played in Spain, like I said, for six years, and then Italy was four and a half years. So I was able to really get a grip on the languages. I have a Spanish family, an Italian family, and I just would lean towards it. But I loved France. I played in Aix-en-Provence, which is very beautiful. It's in the south of France. It's about 30 minutes from Marseille. And then Japan was great, too. I played on the best team in the league. We won every single game we played and the championship. So I have fond memories there. So, But you know what, what it was for me? What I learned very early was wherever you go, don't compare it to what you have now who you are, uh, what you're used to and accustomed to. So I was the one that was always going to my teammates' house. You know, I was eating, you know, I know their families. On holidays, I would go to their home. The teams were going out after after practice or after a game, you know, for dinner and stuff. I was going, you know, if they wanted to go to a disco, you know, whatever, I was going. 
I just wanted to engulf the life and the culture. You know, I wasn't one of those because I had some American friends that came over and they didn't want any part of it. You know, they was like, these people are so backwards, you know, or they, whatever. They all they wanted to do was go go to the McDonald's. That If you happen to play in a big enough city, you know, go to the McDonald's and eat hamburgers and drink Cokes and, you know, didn't want to get out and get and embrace the culture. For me, I, I loved it. it. It was everything. And so for me, I think that was one of the things that really helped me get a better understanding of myself, of life, of people, and just to see the similarities. I mean, when you think of people from different countries, a lot of times we want to create a lot of space, like we're different, but we are truly all the same. We want the same things in life. We want to be loved. We want to love. You know, we want to live well or to be comfortable. You know, we want to enjoy life. We want to be healthy. We want to raise our children. And I mean, we want the same things in life. We sure do. And on the reverse, for me, it was the coming to Brooklyn. And I didn't have to choose because when I came to college in 2004, European recruiting wasn't a thing yet. The internet had just kind of started. I had a dream of playing college basketball back in Germany, but I had no connections. And I just ended up at St. Francis through a mutual connection. And I think when I signed, all the bigger schools were like, how did St. Francis get the 6'8 girl? And at some point, there was probably a time where I was like, when it dawned on me that I could have gone to a different school with a better academic program and that had was higher up in the ranks athletically and all of that. But I'm so grateful for growing into a young adult in Brooklyn and being on the team with some real diversity because growing up in Germany in a very, a very white society and then having teammates from all over. I always mention Margie, my best friend, a Dominican from Washington Heights, all of these people from much different backgrounds and learning that lesson that we're all the same. We're all just trying to do our best. We were on the team wanting to win games, wanting to please the coaches, wanting to build a life for ourselves. I got that lesson and that that coming to Brooklyn and then obviously my three years overseas meeting people from all over, that to me was also just the biggest gift that I took away from my basketball career of just, yeah, meeting people and becoming very open-minded. That's awesome. And then you think about it, it's almost like fate says, no, I don't want you to know. It's like, I didn't know. I should have probably gone to Tennessee. One of my um, high school friends, he grew up two blocks around the corner and uh, he played football. So he went to Tennessee. They had him trying to recruit me, you know, to come. You know, he's like, Kim, you should go to Tennessee with me, you know, and everything. And I was like, I, don't know. I was like, I just want to go somewhere. I want to go somewhere out west. I'm going to go somewhere where the weather's better. And again, it's almost like fate only gave us enough to get where we were supposed to be. You were supposed to probably run into a Brenda for a coach and you were probably supposed to have the experiences that you needed in order to grow and in order to get stronger physically, mentally, emotionally, all of those things. Maybe had you gone to a different situation, I don't know, maybe you would not have gotten this skill set that you've acquired because it would have been something different. So that's the only thing that I can attribute it to. And I'm just, just, you know, and I talk it up and say, we were, and we are where we're supposed to be at all times. 100% agree with that. Speaking of, we end up where we are supposed to be. You have this beautiful career in beautiful countries. And then you, Louisville girl, also end up in Brooklyn in New York City. And you spent basically the last 20 years there until 26. Yeah. Until you moved to Portland recently. 
What's your take on New York City? What's your connection to it? How did you experience living here? I loved New York. And especially because, again, I came in on such a high, awesome level. When I came in, it was to play in the WNBA, which was just kicking off. And we were rock stars. I mean, every time you saw us, we were on TV. We got a chance. We were literally celebrities. Like, celebrities wanted to be around us. You know, I mean, it was so crazy. I remember, I don't know if you know the, the singer. He was he was hot back in the 90s. I'll be sure. I can tell you how I feel about you night and day. You know, so he, he did that song and it was just such a huge hit. You know, when he saw me, he was like, oh my God, Kim Hampton. He said, please, can I take you out? And I'm just like looking like, oh my God, in my head, screaming like, is that what you're asking me? Like, and acting like, you know, and stuff. I mean, it was just amazing. It was so amazing. I, so I got to experience it on a level that was very different. Uh, and then when when I stopped playing and things started dying down a little bit, then it became a little bit more average, you know, a little bit more regular. And it wasn't quite as fun, but it was still fun. I mean, I, I was able to still carve my niche out. If I wanted to be in the mix of things, I could and knew how to. I still got a chance to go to a lot of stuff and still meet a lot of people and celebrities and do a lot of events and things like that. So for me, my experience was great. And New York is such a beautiful, it's just such a beautiful city. I mean, it's amazing. It, you know, sometimes when I'm flying in and you look, it's so picturesque. I mean, the water, the bridges, it has everything you could ever want. I mean, it's four seasons. Yeah, It has the best sports comes through there. The best entertainment goes through there. You have the best food in the world. It's like a melting pot of the whole world. And it is just amazing. So I'm just so grateful to have navigated that because it takes thick skin to be able to play in New York as well and as athletes. I mean, uh, it's a lot of pro athletes, you know, that have learned that lesson. You know, you, you have to have thick skin to be able to play there. So it was just a blessing to say that, wow, I spent 26 years of my life there in New York. It is a beautiful city. And I, I remember when I came here, Again, like you, I didn't have a visit to come see the campus. I just, after phone call, after phone call, after phone call, I finally said, fine, I'll just get on a plane and check it out. What's the worst thing that could happen? And then they took me to the Brooklyn Heights promenade the first night. And I'm like, come on. Okay, I'm sold. So for, <laughs> for the people who don't know, it's this place in Brooklyn where for a couple of miles, you can just walk and you have prime views of the Manhattan skyline and the Brooklyn Bridge and the Statue of Liberty. And it had this just this magic. Euro, it's Euro, almost like a French picturesque, you know, like, yeah, it, it almost has a Euro feel to it. But if you think about it, New York was built you know, with all the immigrants that came over. New York was built on a European. There's so much about New York that reminds me of Europe. There's so many parts of it. Yeah. And now lately, I've been feeling a pull away from it just because I'm getting a little bit more into wanting to spend more time in nature. And but it's hard to leave because it is so beautiful. But life is like, like you said, you have to have a thick skin being an athlete here and you have to have a thick skin in general. And everything is kind of hard. You know, nothing really comes easy to you in New York. But Frank said it best. Yeah. But Frank said it best. If you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Yeah. And I feel you. That's where I was, Kat, actually. Um, when the opportunity came, I was ready to leave New York. I was, you know, I just had enough. I just wanted something, a different opportunity. I just wanted something different. I was ready. And so now I'm out here in Portland and the summers, oh my God, are so amazing. And everyone hikes and everyone, like, it's so much nature. I mean, it is just 
incredibly beautiful. And yes, it does have a, a rainy winter and things like that, but it has been unseasonally. I've been praying that we get sunny days, more sunny days, less rain. And and uh, I'm just really enjoying it. And I think too, there's something about nature. Well, that's not that I think. I know that there's something about nature that is very grounding. Being around a lot of trees and being around a lot of nature, it's grounding. And, and after being in New York, which New York has a, a pulse, it has an energy about it that can be detrimental to one's being you know, mentally, physically, emotionally, if you're not careful, if you don't know how to ground yourself, you get caught up in this whirlwind of energy and it starts to wreak havoc on you mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So I just felt it like just antsy, just wanting to do something different. And so coming here, it's just been like, okay, this is very zen, you know, and I do this like little yoga routine every day. I'm, I'm trying to just roll it back and just really enjoy the peace of things. It's much easier to find peace anywhere else but in New York City because you can, like you said, it, you can do anything here. Anything is available to you at any point. There are meditation classes and yoga classes and you could do anything, but you have to work really hard to get grounded. Take a yoga class, for example. You're going to end up in a crowded room with 30 other people. So how relaxing is that? Or sometimes I'm sitting here trying to meditate And then you get the garbage truck and the ambulance and then the motorcycle that wants to have the loudest the engine on the block. Blowing, the horn blowing. Yeah. All of that. So I definitely feel that. So I'm glad you're embracing the peace. You're going to have to come. I'm telling you. I will. So because you've ended up taking me on basically the story of your life from Arizona to Europe to New York, and now you're in Portland, and I know you're there because you got an opportunity to work with Nike. Tell me and the listeners a bit more about what you're doing there. So right now I'm working in um, consumer direct marketing, and we work on specific accounts. And based off of what our partners have purchased from the allotment that they have access to, we help them tell stories to market the products to the consumers. So an example would be, we work with Hibbit. It's one of our accounts. And with Hibbit, we have different campaigns and Support Her Soul is one of our campaigns. And we seek out women doing powerful things. N7 is also a campaign for Nike. And N7 is their Native American line. If you look at N7 Nike, you'll be able to pull up different sneakers, styles, you know, just different things that support the Native American communities. So with Support Her Soul, we did a feature where we featured several Native American women. We take pictures and of them and videos of them wearing some Nike stuff, but interacting in their communities and their native communities. Like one was a muralist and we showed her doing her art. And uh, one was a videographer and we showed her and, and why, and she was learning to bead because her Cherokee culture, they were beaders and, but people had forgotten that. So she, it, it was an opportunity for her to tell her story and how to get reconnected to her native culture. And, you know, by talking to a lot of the ancestors and talking to a lot of the people just to be grounded in the history. And so we featured her and telling her story and she, she loves Nike and gives you an opportunity. So it was like support her soul. Another thing that we did, I was in Alabama last month and 
one of the schools got hit, destroyed by a hurricane. And so with Support Her Soul, along with Hibbit, we donated $50,000 to that high school for the women's, for the girls' sports athletic program. And so we went to the school. Um, I got a chance to speak and address the the athletic program. They had the boys there as well, too. I had a chance to speak to them just like on a motivational level. And we donated that check. So it's about empowering. We're telling stories to empower communities because they buy our products. And so we want to help each store help their consumer. But we need them to tell that story in their voice, not how Nike wants to tell the story. So it's basically they're telling us what it is. And then we're saying, okay. Okay, so here's what we can do, you know, and things like that. So we come up with collaborative ideas on how to tell a great story on a specific product from a person that's authentic and true to that community and who really rocks that Air Force One, for example, or who is really a small town sneakerhead, who is, that's another campaign that we do, small town sneakerheads. It's not sneakerheads that live in Brooklyn, you know, and stuff. These are small town, like it might be Ithaca, New York, and a person might have some high heat over the years that they've accumulated and we want to tell their story. How did you first get into sneakers and who was your role model? And what's the longest time you've ever, you know, waited to get a pair, you know, a sneaker, particularly, you know, what in your closet, then we might come and look, do you want to pass this on? So, you know, it's those stories that resonate to people that wear Nike products. And, you know, we just want to just make those people relevant and those stories relevant. So that's what I do. That's really cool to hear because I think most of us get hit with the big campaigns, the Just Do It, the Serena and all the big stars. And I think when I think of marketing, usually I think of trying to sell as much as possible. So it's cool to hear how much thought and soul goes into it and that there's people like you pouring their soul and life experience and all of that into it. That makes me happy. That makes me think of the world in a slightly better light. <laughs> I feel completely blessed um, working in this department because I really see that it's authentic too. It's not, it's genuine. It's not like they're just doing this just to sell sneakers. Okay, just do this, just put that out. No, if the story is not right, if the story is not authentic, like they are really trying to pull so that everyone can see and hear and learn about this community and see and hear and learn about these people. It's, it's just so cool. And then it's, it's mostly these stories are mostly affecting People of color, like I said, the Native American community, the Hispanic community, the African-American you know, community, because these are the people that rock this product. So why not feature them? Why not tell their stories? Why just use models? Why not let them be the true authenticators, you know, the true protagonists and, you know, and storytellers? So, yes, I love that. So speaking of you pouring your gifts into this new opportunity, I have one final question for you because I know we're coming up on time here. And that question is, what is your greatest gift to the world? I would say my greatest gift to the world is making people feel good, making people feel positive, making people feel seen, heard, loved making people feel safe. I think that's probably my, my greatest gift. Being able to see people like I was able to see you if you were, weren't confident in a particular time, you know, I could look at you and say in a non-judgmental way, you know, okay, don't worry about playing good. Just if you think about this, get three rebounds a quarter or get four points, you know, just trying to break it down and finding a way 
to make people feel good about themselves. Okay, yeah, that happened. But everybody misses shots. You know, okay, so what? You know, you were in a relationship where a person couldn't, but you got to stand up for yourself. So just making people reel it back in or helping people reel it back in so that they can see that they're okay. I didn't even have to bring it full circle. You you already did that for me because as you were saying that your gift is to make people feel good and, and feel seen and safe. It just took me back to the beginning when I talked about how you always this safe place to land for me. And and yeah, you always did make me feel good and, and seen and loved. And so I'm grateful to have you in my life and to have received that gift from you. And I'm grateful that now whoever is listening to it is getting a little bit of a taste of Kim Hampton because the world needs you and needs your gifts and needs you to shine your light. So thank you again for spending your morning with me and making it happen. And I love you and thank you so much. And I love you too. And I'm so grateful to have been, uh, to have had this opportunity to be here. And I just want to say to your listeners, just remember We have to surround ourselves with more positivity, things that ground us, things that make us feel safe. So, you know, I just encourage everyone and I challenge everyone to start your day off before you even get out of bed, throw the covers off. Just lay there and take like five deep breaths and just say, thank you. Thank you for this new day. Thank you that I'm alive. Thank you that I have challenges that push me and help me to be better, help me to process life. And help me to understand the things, you know, that I can control, the things that are not in my control. I think, you know, one of the things we have to learn how to do is just we have to learn to be more comfortable with the uncomfortable because being uncomfortable is natural and it's going to always happen. Change is going to always happen. And we just have to remember that when we're comfortable in life, we're probably not growing. Again, perception is everything. We have to look at challenges and adversity as not being a bad thing as, huh, okay, what am I supposed to learn here? What is it that I need to do? And then two, you know, you have to, I think it's just being honest with yourself because you can't fix what you won't face. And then another huge thing is just giving yourself grace, giving yourself peace and grace to know that life, we wouldn't sit with no playbook. When you're born, you don't have a playbook that comes with you and be like, okay, if you do this and do this and go there and go here, you're going to avoid that. And When you see that person turn and run the other direction, you, no, we weren't sitting with playbooks, you know, so we have to figure it out. But giving yourself grace and being honest with yourself and then taking some time out, carving some time out each day, preferably at the start of the day, you know, just to tell yourself you love yourself and tell yourself, you know, you're doing the best you can. And those things are super important. You have to find ways to ground yourself and listening to podcasts like this, listening to different people tell their stories. You know, I'm sure you can resonate and relate to somebody's story because we all can, because we are all really one in all of this. So I think number one, loving yourselves and then just having grace with other people, because at the end of the day, you know, people do things we're more successful when we don't take things personal because people are going to do all kinds of crazy things, stupid stuff, say stuff, hurt our feelings, you know? Yeah. But if we don't take it personal, because remember the saying hurt people, hurt people. You know, if we don't take it personal, then it's, we're less attached to it and we can let go of it a little bit easier. So remember that don't take things personal. Then again, when you face adversity, see how what you can do about it, that makes the situation better for you and have grace with yourselves. I have nothing to add to that. We're going to leave it here. Thank you, Kim. You're the best. You're the best, my baby. All right. I love you. Love you. <laughs>